Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Morning, church. I need you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. We're going to be beginning in verse 14 here in just a moment. If you're visiting Christ Church today, my name's Mark, and we're glad you're with us. And uh, we have a gift for you, especially if you've just come a couple of times and you're just kind of wondering and checking us out. But uh, we'd like you to go to our Welcome Center. We have a little gift for you. Promises, no strings attached. You can use it today at the cafe or you can use it next time you come back. Just a little thank you and uh, get to know who you are and just tell you we're glad you're here. Uh, If you've been coming to Christ Church for a while now and you kind of wonder if this is going to be your church home and you want to know what that would look like, uh, we're going to invite you next Sunday during our third hour, which is at 1045 at 11 o'clock, and the information's in the uh, bulletin today, and you can get it online. We have a Next Step Coffee, which is an opportunity for you to come, meet some of our staff, and have some of the questions answered that you might have. What is it? What does it mean to be a part of Christ's church? How could I serve? What's expected of me? And most of all, what we want to share with you is what we're trying to do as a church. What is our vision and mission as a congregation in the four states area? And so if those things intrigue you and you'd like answers to those questions, it's a come and go opportunity. You don't have to stay for a set piece. You just come in. There'll be a few comments made, an opportunity to have those questions answered. We really encourage you, if you want to know what your next step is, take advantage of that uh, next Sunday at 11 o'clock. As Isaac mentioned, this morning is a special day for us. It's a big splash Sunday. Uh, We have done this historically on Sunday nights, allowing people that want to make the decision to be baptized but uh, uh, have been just waiting or had questions to be uh, asked and answered. Uh, But this morning we're going to do it as a part of our worship here today. And we have a number of people that are in the room right now who have told us, hey, I'd like to do it this hour. And I've invited friends and family to be here. And so at a moment within the message, I'm going to go ahead and dismiss those of you Uh, who would like to be baptized this morning. If you've come and you didn't let us know, please don't let that stop you. We have everything you need here. We have shorts and t-shirts and towels, and uh, we have everything to take care of you if God leads you in this moment to say, I've wanted to do this, and today's a good day to do this. During the message, if you have questions, uh, if you go out into the foyer and take a left in the south or in the northeast corner, will be some of our staff and elders that would be more than happy to answer any questions you have. Uh, And this could start the process of you taking this step of obedience to Jesus. And so if that takes place, um, the more important conversation is in the hallway. So feel free to step out at any time and ask that. And when I uh, tell people in the middle of the sermon this morning to go ahead and head out these doors in the hallway, some staff and elders will meet you out there and take you to the uh, baptistry area. Uh, Please feel free to respond at that time as well. Really excited about what God's going to do this morning as we see people make this commitment we talked about last week which is to be washed clean and to walk in newness of life. And uh, so it's going to be a good day, regardless of what I say in the next 20 minutes, okay? So tolerate that, and we'll get on to the celebration. We're in Romans chapter 7 today. Uh, When people ask me about this series, there's a word that's come to mind. It's an odd word. The first time I said it, uh, I caught myself by surprise, and that is that I think Romans is a destructive series. It's destructive, which is a strange word for what we're trying to do as a church, but here's what it is. It destroys our concept of religion. A proper understanding of Romans, it destroys the typical justifying positions we hold. I'm better than I used to be. I stopped my bad habits. I'm trying harder. I'm attending church. God's going to love me because I'm working at being a better version of myself. At the end of the day, I need you to know that's 
Romans destroys that argument. Romans 5 tells us that the only way we're going to be right with God is to allow the work that Jesus did to take our place. And so because of that, this destructive series uh, continues today as we look in Romans chapter 7 and into a part of chapter 8 today. It's a very complex passage. And so I'm going to give it to you in bite-sized pieces so that I can explain it to the best of my ability. What we learn in chapter 5 is that we are challenged to know that our sin cannot be ignored. It has to be reconciled. That there's a price that has to be paid for our rebellion. And in chapter 5 tells us that God is just, so a price must be paid. But it also says God is the justifier, and that price was paid by Jesus. In chapter 6, we realize that God wants us to enter into this relationship with him, And baptism is a part of that where we are entered into this death of Jesus so that we can rise into the resurrection of Jesus. And chapter 6 tells us that our enslavement to sin can be remedied by the work that Jesus did as well. And in our baptism, we realize we receive the forgiveness of sins, Acts 2.38, and the gift of the Holy Spirit, which when we get to Romans chapter 8 today, you're going to see is more than significant. It's necessary. And then at the beginning of this chapter, which I'm only going to summarize, the first six verses, I'm only going to summarize. Paul shows us that since we were freed from our slavery to sin, we need to see the law in a new way. Because the law was given by God. So let's go back to the Old Testament. The law was given by God to the Jews. So the Jews would know how to live a holy life. They would know how to live this out. And so he gave it to them to not only have a right relationship with him, but the law also allows us to live well with one another, to care for each other, to provide for each other. So due to our sinful choices, instead of the law being a blessing, when we rebelled against God, the law became a curse. It became, it threatened us. It caused us to say, well, what good is the law? All it does is tell me I'm wrong. Well, the law will tell you you're wrong if you're wrong. So we look at the law and say, the law is not good, the law is not healthy, and here's the first point today. The law was not our problem. The law in and of itself was a good thing, but our rebellion turned it into a threatening thing, and thus it became punitive, because when the law is broken, the just response is that justice must be performed. So Paul's going to give you, and I'm going to warn you in advance, verses 14 through 25 are pretty intense, uh, intricately written phrases. So we're going to walk through them, and I'm going to do my best to summarize it as quickly and succinctly as I can. Let's begin. Verse 14. Paul says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, But it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I I have the desires to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. We can all understand that, right? I mean, pretty simple. I'm not who I want to be. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
So then I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Now that's simple, right? Everybody got that. It's okay in this moment to look at that and think, Paul is writing this intricate dialogue using his own person as an example of all of us. This is not Paul's personal confession. Paul is representing mankind by saying, here's the struggle we have writing in the first person. And there's three ways to interpret this. Very briefly, you can look at this as Paul's writing as a person who's unsaved, a person who doesn't have a right relationship with God and is struggling. Or you can look at it as someone who does have a right relationship with God and still struggles with sin. And that's a very common take on this passage. However, recently, I've been shown that there's possibly a third definition, and it actually makes more sense going into Romans 8. And the third definition is this. Paul is still writing to the same audience. He hasn't broken this into chapters. He's breaking it into arguments. And what he's doing is he's looking at those Israelites who say that because we're Jews, we're more right with God than anybody else. But in chapter 2 and 3, he disposes of that argument by saying, no, your sin may be not as external as others, but it's the same sin. So what is he saying to the Israelites who are holding on to the law and denying the power that Jesus has made available to them. If that's the interpretation, then what we have here is a group of people who are saying, I'm trying to do the right thing and I can't. I don't have the power within my sinful flesh to overcome myself. And we all can relate to that, right? When you read chapter 7, it may be we're answering a question none of us are asking. So let me pose the question up front. Have you tried to live your entire life the best you could and you realize at the end of the day the best you could isn't good enough? And changing the best you could going forward doesn't make up for all the angst and pain you've brought in your previous life. If that's the case and you understand what Paul's saying, then we try to live our life by our own power. We're desperate. We don't do the things we want to do. We end up doing the things we don't want to do. And all the time, the temptation of the law to do the right thing is conflicted with the sinful desire to live however I want. The point is, the law is not broken. We are. It's not the law's fault any more than blaming an x-ray machine for showing you your broken foot because you kicked a wall. The x-ray machine's not at fault. It simply has showed you that the choices you've made were in rebellion to the truth you knew. Adam and Eve are in the garden. God says, don't eat the fruit of the tree. The moment God said, you can't eat that tree, what do we all want to do? Eat the fruit of the tree. Who's he to tell me I can't do what I want? Uh, God? And I don't mean like the God that smites. I mean the God that let you live here. The God that allows you to breathe. The God that gave you your abilities. The God that blesses you with rain when you haven't deserved it and sunshine when you don't deserve it. And he's given you an earth that grows beautiful, wonderful things to eat and enjoy. Can I have an amen, church? Talk to me today. First hour fell asleep. I'm going to keep you awake. See, when we look at God as the enemy who's telling us no, then our rebellion increases. But when we look at the God that we've been talking about for the last six weeks as the God who's giving us a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance because he loves us more than we love ourselves, when God tells you no, it's for a good reason. So let's go all the way back to a series we did on faith back in July. And I'm sure you remember every word of it. That's me being sarcastic. We talked about faith being based on two principles. 
I want to review them with you and see if you remember. The first principle is, is God good? Church, talk to me. And does God keep all of his promises? Then you can place faith in that. When the prohibition comes up to say, that's not good for you. I don't want you to do that because that's harmful to others. When we rebel and take the fruit off the tree and take a bite, we're saying to God, you're not good and you don't keep your promises. Our rebellion is an inner attitude. The law wasn't broken. The law just showed us we were. The sin that dwells within. And Paul was a Jewish teacher. He knew what the rabbis taught. The rabbis taught that there's this battle inside each of us between evil and good. And their remedy to that was just know the law and practice the law perfectly and you will overcome the evil. How does that work? It doesn't work for me. I know what's right. And I still, deep down, struggle with moments of surrendering to what is right because I want that temporary fleshly satisfaction. So the Jews would say, just know the law, study the law, and you'll become a better version of yourself. But Paul's solution is radically different. Paul cries out in verse 24, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me? It reminds me of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, when the glory of God was shown to Isaiah, and he falls on his face and he says, I am ruined. When I know who God is and I know what I've let myself become, not that it's been accidental. Let's remove all the accidents away. Let's just talk about the moments we did whatever we wanted, no matter how, who it hurt or what it said. He cries out, I'm ruined. What a wretched man I am. And Paul cries out in his argument, if left to my own devices and trying to live my life without the power that God's given me through Jesus Christ, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me? And this is where we need to pick on one key word, I think, in the seventh chapter. If Paul would have said, what will rescue me, your salvation would be up to your behavior. But Paul doesn't say, what will rescue me? Paul says, who will? And it changes it from under our control to the simple mercy of Jesus himself. And this is where Paul's wanted to take us the entire time. Look at verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Paul says, thanks to Jesus. My mind can be on the goodness of God, and my body will struggle with the law of sin, but there's something for me. It's Jesus. Now, I know that shocks all of you to come to church and preach or talk about Jesus. But do you understand the argument that's been made for the last seven chapters? Left to our own devices, we're desperate. There's nothing you can do in the future that's going to make up for the sin of your past. What do we do with that reality? How do we adjust to that? How do we, how do we live our lives with any hope knowing that I've done exactly what I've been convicted of? Paul says, thanks be to God for his son Jesus who supplies what we need to overcome what we've done. And we've been talking for weeks now that there's a double cure needed. There's the power to overcome our sin, and then there's the power to live differently because of that. And see, when we talked last week, that when we are entered into this death of Jesus Christ, then we believe that we're going to walk into a newness of life, don't we? We believe that if if God is willing to overcome our sin, he's not going to just say, now just do better. If doing better has never been the solution, then don't think that upon your baptism or confession of faith in Jesus that doing better is the new solution. It's not. The new solution is found in chapter 8. 
And right now I'm going to ask those of you that have come today and you've made the decision that you want to enter into the death of Jesus and walk out of there cleansed into this new life. I'm going to ask you to take your stuff and go ahead and go out these doors in the hallway and you'll be met out there because just in a few moments, your testimony is going to be demonstrated to the church here and we're going to celebrate your baptism. So if that's you, feel free to, this is one of the few times I'll ever encourage you to walk out of church. So (laughs) take advantage of it, love every minute of it. And we're looking forward to that. So, let's look at the second piece of this. What do we do going forward? What is the solution? If, if it's not just living by my own power, what is the solution? Well, the Spirit of God is the power by which we live. I'd like to explain through verse 8, but we need to start with chapter 8, verse 1. And I know there's distractions with people coming and going, and they're, they're doing the better thing right now. But I want you to focus with me on verse 1. I'm going to read it, and it's not that I've lost my place. If... Chapter 8, verse 1, doesn't stir your spirit, and we can't celebrate it, then anything I say this morning is going to be lost. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let that echo. There is no judgment of God on those who the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed. There's not now and there won't be in the future. If that doesn't make your tail wag, check your pulse. And I don't care if you've been a believer since Jesus left, all right? You may be a believer a long time. Oh, preacher, I've been a believer longer than you've been alive. Fantastic, but don't ever let this moment become just another fact. It's, it's what Paul's been writing about. It's the reason he turns the page from chapter seven into chapter eight, and he begins this. Now, how do we live knowing that there is no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Where the law used to point out my errors, the the law now shows me a better way to live with God and my neighbor. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the spirit. N.T. Wright, who is a British theologian, he says that the spirit of God is able to do what the law of God could not do. The law of God could not give us moral life in the present. And it could not give us resurrected life in the future but the Spirit of God can. Let me say that again. The Spirit of God is the only power you and I have available to us to not not only overcome our past, but to begin to live the resurrected future right now. Being good does not provide that. We needed God to do something. And it says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be met in us through Jesus. So let me explain this again. If you're just joining us today and you think, wow, this is like really thick. It's not normally this way, but we're in one of the thickest books in the New Testament. So here's what we need to understand. We've been asking ourselves a primary question from day one of this series. How can God, who's a just God and does not change his holiness for anything, how does he look at an unholy me and count me as equal to Jesus? How can a holy God look at an unholy me and count me as holy? That's the question Romans is pursuing at its heartbeat. And the answer is found here. 
The holy God allowed holy Jesus to come and die as a substitution for my sin so that my sins could be forgiven and I could be counted as holy. Not just one moment in time, but a holiness that proceeds unto my death and into eternity. Does that make sense? The righteousness of the law was met in Jesus Christ in us. That the sacrifice Jesus made was so that our sins could be forgiven and we could learn to live again. No longer headed toward death, but living above death. Verse 5. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what the nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Notice what makes the difference. Your mind. What does your mind desire? What are you focusing and feeding your mind and soul about? The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. So what are we living for? Are we living for the mind that says, I want the temporary satisfactions of the right now? I'm going to live my whole life doing the best I can, and if I ever need God, I'm going to cry out an SOS, and he's going to swing in and save me? Or does our mind say, no, I don't want to go back to eating out of the dumpster again? I don't want to be fed by garbage. I want to live this new life. I believe that God has something greater for me. Jesus did not come to give me one more chance. Jesus came to teach me how to live, that you might have life and have it abundantly. So Paul says what we focus our mind on, it begins in our minds, that what their minds are set on is what their nature desires. So things like reading your scriptures, gathering with people occasionally, and talking about the Bible, praying for each other, talking about our struggles. Those aren't just things we do to keep your hands clean. Those are things we encourage because there's life in them. It's how the Spirit of God works in us. You cannot walk your spirituality alone. It doesn't work. You must live in a community where we grow together and the Spirit of God works within us. That's why in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, it says, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. It's not denying that you're enticed by the things of the flesh. It's realizing that they're temporary, but the things that God offers us are better. The mind set on the spirit will find life, and the mind set on the flesh will find death. Paul's challenging all of us to understand this. Verse 9 and 10, however, and he makes a distinction now to those walking by the spirit. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. So Paul switches. I want you to notice something here briefly. In just a few moments, I want to be able to show you something. If you read Romans 8 through the 13th verse, you're going to notice that the Holy Spirit is called three things. Spirit of life, the spirit of God, and the spirit of Christ. Now, what's significant about that is, if you go back to creation in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Genesis 3, and it's being told, you'll notice that it says that God said, let us make man in our image. Plurality. There was more than just God there in creation. Colossians will tell us that Jesus was there creating. So there was God and Jesus, and then there was a spirit that hovered over the earth and brought it to life. So when he says, let us make man in our image, he was talking about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Trinity is glimpsed in this moment. But what I want you to notice in Romans 8, 
When Paul's challenging us that there's more to life than just having your sins forgiven, there's living and walking in Christ by the Holy Spirit, he notices that the Spirit performs the actions of recreation. The Spirit of the Father, the Spirit of the Son, and the Spirit of life. So here's the good news, church. God created us once, and he could have said, I gave you a chance. But instead, our God says, no, I'm going to recreate you again. And through the work of my spirit, I'm going to bring you from void to life, to full creation. I'm going to bring you back from the dead and give you purpose and passion, and I'm going to guide you. Let us create. Let us recreate. Verse 11. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation. But it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. He's calling us to change our minds about sin, about the choices we're making. It's not just saying, I don't want to go to hell. Do you want to be alive? Do you want the presence of God to speak and guide? Because the, the spirit of God is not a weapon. It's not an antidote. It's not a medicine we take. The spirit of God is a person. And to be led by the spirit of God means you and I need to submit. Now, some of us, if I'm guessing at all, you're freaking out right now. What does this mean? Do I have to go into a trance? Does it change everything about me? No, no, listen. The spirit of God is gentle, but he's true. And he will speak into your heart conviction. Conviction about having a conversation or not having a conversation. About living a certain way or not living a certain way. He's going to begin to challenge you. When you read the, the, the word of God and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, it's not some supernatural buzz. It's not this electric feeling that comes up from your toes. Sometimes I'm reading a passage of scripture and I'll see something of a, of a passage I've read 20 times in my life and I'll open it up and I'll see something I've never seen before and it's the Holy Spirit going, notice that. And those are the best moments in life is to realize I have a God who's not spun me and left me on my own, but a God who's trying to move in my heart to say, I want you to notice what I'm doing around you. Get in on it. And church, let me ask you a simple question today. Isn't that what we all want, to get in on what God's doing? And not just so we don't go to hell. We want to get in on it because there's life to be offered to people we love, people who have no hope, They're looking for it in alcohol and sex and money and power instead of looking at it in joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control, the things the Holy Spirit wants to bring us. What Paul's done is he said, here's what we've learned so far. You're justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the only way you're justified. You're sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit to guide you into new life so that you can live the final piece of this all, glorification. So that my life is not, I have to do this so God doesn't get mad. My life becomes, I get to do this because I want people to know the God that's changed me. I want people to know the life that I hold to. You see, this work of the Holy Spirit is not a luxury. It's a necessity. And that's why this church immerses when we baptize. Because in my study of Scripture... The only place that I see in all of Scripture where the Holy Spirit comes into you to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit is found in baptism, Acts chapter 2 and Romans chapter 6. So we believe here that if the Holy Spirit is not a luxury but a necessity, then we need to do Bible things Bible ways. 
And we need to challenge one another to hold to that, to live by this person, to submit to this person, to put to to death the deeds of the body, to make conscientious choices, to say, I no longer want to live this way. God, help me to make the choices that honor you and so that others will know what a difference Jesus makes. Back in Romans 6, Paul put it very succinctly. Do not present your members, your bodies, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. What I really love about this morning is it's Valentine's Day. And guys, if you're just finding out about that, I'll pray for you. But it's Valentine's Day. And on a day of love, we're going to witness this morning over 20 or so people who are going to enter into a marriage relationship with Jesus Christ. And they're going to become the bride of Christ. And they are going to be cleansed by their groom. And they're going to walk into this new relationship with him going forward. It's a very special day. It's a celebratory day. But if Valentine's Day is a day you have to buy a card and you have to buy some candy and you have to come up with something because you're afraid you'll be punished if you won't, that's the perfect example of what we're talking about today. We're not talking about giving God what he wants so he doesn't get mad. We're talking about giving God what he wants because we love him. Amen? So today we're going to celebrate some acts of love. And I'm going to ask you to pay close attention to that window there when the curtain goes up because you're going to see a number of people this morning. And we're going to sing and worship through it. And remember, there's no decorum in this place. Whistle, scream, shout, and dance because new life is taking place. Let's notice what's taking place in the baptistry. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.